0: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Shotguns and Sugar, where we take a look at the history you don't always learn about in school. I am Charles McCloskey and in this episode, one of a series on the American Civil War on the World Stage, I'm going to discuss American slavery and war economics within the context of European interest in the American Civil War. Shortly after 5 p.m. on May 2nd, 1863... The Union's Army of the Potomac, commanded by the recently appointed Joseph Hooker, was preparing to advance against Lee's apparently retreating Army of of Northern Virginia near Chancellorsville when, seemingly out of the blue, no pun intended, Southern General Stonewall Jackson, who had spent most of the day circling his command to the west of the Union Army, attacked the Union's unprepared 11th Corps. His attack shattered the Union Army's right flank and allowed Jackson's forces to advance on the main body of the Northern Army, rolling up retreating Union forces as they went. After advancing about a mile down the Orange Turnpike, a major road running west from Chancellorsville, Jackson's forces ran into a Union stonewall, pun intended. Lieutenant Herbert Dilger, commander of the 1st Ohio Light Artillery, after observing Jackson's army's movements earlier in the afternoon, had aligned his cannons to face up the turnpike. Holding his troops together in the face of retreating Union soldiers, Dilger's guns acted as a rear guard of sorts, firing on the attacking Confederates until they ran out of ammunition. Dilger's actions permitted the remnants of the 11th Corps to reform near Dodal's tavern where they withstood four more attacks, slowing Jackson's advance until darkness forced the Confederates to cease operations and allow the Union Army to escape. Although they'd been on the losing side that day at Chancellorsville, Dilger's artillery and the rest of the 1st Ohio Regiment had distinguished themselves before Chancellorsville in numerous battles in Missouri, helping to keep that state in the Union. Two months after Chancellorsville, Dilger's command again blocked a Confederate attack, this one along the Carlisle Road into Gettysburg, protecting the Union's flank off of Cemetery Ridge. But it was his actions in Chancellorsville that won Dilger the Congressional Medal of Honor. Like hundreds of other foreigners who fought for both the North and the South, Dilger was not an American citizen. Born in Germany's Black Forest, he was trained in artillery tactics while serving in the German military. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he obtained a leave of absence and volunteered his services to fight on the Union side. In that effort, he joined between 150 and 200 other German aristocrats who fought under northern commanders. Germany, in fact, was a strong supporter of the North throughout the war. The German financial markets was one of the most important purchasers of northern bonds. Although the Lincoln's administration followed a generally protectionist international trade policy throughout the war, commerce between Germany and the United States actually increased in each of the war years. Indeed throughout the 1850s and 60s only England exceeded Germany in importance for America's international trade. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is part of a series of podcasts on the Civil War on the World stage. Other podcasts in this series focus on the impact of technologies in this and future wars, uh, theoretical debates on nationalism and ethnic unity, and on Reconstruction. However, in this episode, I want to talk about American slavery and the economics of the war as elements in the world's interest in the American Civil War. Like my other podcasts on this topic, this one is based on lectures I put together for college classes I've taught in both United States and world history. For those of you who would like to further investigate this topic, or perhaps are looking for sources on the subject for your own purposes, a reference list for this podcast series is available on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. Slavery was, to my mind, probably the most important issue the international community had relative to the American Civil War. Slavery was both a moral and an economic issue for the European community, and sometimes these two issues conflicted when it came to American slavery. By 1860, the greater part of Europe had abandoned the practice out of moral concerns and economic changes. In 1789, the French Revolution resulted in their Declaration of the Rights of Man. This document, while not explicitly forbidding slavery, set the stage for the Haitian Slave Revolt of 1791, which demonstrated to the French that the system was impossible to maintain, leading to its elimination of the practice in 1818. Germany, Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands all abolished slavery before 1860. Similarly, the English condemned the practice, forbidding the slave trade in 1807, and outlawing the practice itself in 1833. During the early decades of the 1800s, British abolitionist societies began to influence American thought on the subject. For example, the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society organized the first World Anti-Slavery Convention in 1840. It was held in London's Exeter Hall. This convention is historically important, not only because of its subject, but because of its presiding authority. None other than the recently wed Prince Consort to Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Prince Albert had accepted the position of President of the African Civilization Society for the Extinction of the Slave Trade only a few days before the conference. His address opening the conference was his first public speech to the English population since his marriage. The written text of his speech includes the comment, I deeply regret that the benevolent and persevering exertions of England to abolish that atrocious traffic in human beings, at once the desolation of Africa, and the blackest stain upon civilized Europe, have not, as yet, led to any satisfactory conclusion. Coming from one who, just weeks before, was part of a German royal family, this statement really highlights the moral imperative Europeans felt for the abandonment of slavery. Although the vast majority of the conference delegates were from the United Kingdom, there were a smattering from other countries. Attendance was tabulated at somewhere between 500 and 4,500, depending on who you ask, about 40 of whom were from the United States. Although slavery in several countries was discussed, the anti-slavery efforts in the United States appears to be one of the most important topics of the conference. Parenthetically, the conference was also an important contributor to the early feminist movement here in the United States. Two American women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, were part of a delegation of American women who attended the conference. Their friendship, which developed during the convention, eventually resulted in the Seneca Falls Convention, which is vividly considered the originating meeting of the suffragette movement of the 1800s. Yet Europe's moral revulsion towards slavery took a definite backseat to its reliance on America's slave trade to support its industrial complex. British and French textile mills purchased the product of American slave labor, cotton, in record amounts. The 1840s and 50s were considered the most profitable decades for southern plantation owners. Throughout the Antebellum era, slavery was a key to the southern economy, and the southern economy was strong. Cotton was a global commodity, and the American South dominated that market. The factory systems throughout England and France, not to mention the American North, were dependent upon southern cotton. One historian has commented that the slaves of the South were worth more than all the railroads and factories of the North and South combined. Slavery was a good business and a shrewd investment. Indeed, Megan Gambino informs us that before the war, American cotton impacted about one-fifth of all British households. The importance of their cotton to England led southern planters to believe that their position in the worldwide cotton trade gave them the economic power they needed to demand political support from Europe. They argued that the loss of southern cotton, the result, in part, of the naval blockade the Union imposed on southern ports, could destabilize the entire European economy. Unfortunately for the Confederacy, European industrialists had purchased so much cotton in the late 1850s that by 1860 English warehouses were filled to the bursting point with southern cotton. The glut ruined the value of the South's freshly harvested crop. It took a year and a half for the English mills to use up what they already had stored, time that they were able to spend building other sources, like their colonial holdings in Egypt and India thus reducing the need for the more risky North American cotton, further damaging the value of the Confederacy's slave-driven cotton industry. All that said, the South's inability to use cotton as a bargaining chip in the battle for British support had relatively little impact. The role the Southern weapon of ethnic unity played in this battle successfully held British support for the South throughout the early years of the war. I talk more about this issue in the podcast on nationalism and the Civil War. Though informal, Southerners also carried on an active research and development program, to use a modern term, of its peculiar institution. Although the South was heavily invested in agricultural applications of slavery, Southerners studied and experimented with ways to expand the system in terms of both geography and innovation. Geographically, both Brazil and Cuba were relatively close countries with strong slave economies. In fact, both of these countries maintained slave-based economies into the 1880s. In the minds of many in the South, building relations with those countries could support the continued growth of slavery in the United States. Southerners also sought to demonstrate how slavery fit into an increasingly industrial society. For example, Grandin Royston, a well-respected politician and entrepreneur based out of Washington, Arkansas, learned about Henry Merrill's efforts to build slave-operated mills. A New Yorker by birth, but a southerner by marriage, Merrill used his background in mechanical engineering to construct slave-operated mills throughout the South. In the 1850s, Royston invited Merrill to extend his work west to Arkansas. Merrill located an ideal spot for one of his mills about three miles north of Murfreesboro, in southern Arkansas. In honor of his friend, Merrill named the company town Royston. The town was short-lived. It closed its doors when the Confederacy moved the mill to Texas in order to prevent its destruction by approaching Union forces. Nevertheless, Merrill and Royston's efforts illustrates the Southern vision of expanding slavery beyond the fields and into the factories. In the end, Confederate efforts to win support on the worldwide stage died when the North fired a single shot from its most powerful weapon in the battle for European support. When President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he did so as a military measure. In fact, the proclamation itself says it was issued as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion. Militarily, freeing the slaves robbed the Confederacy of their enslaved labor, and strengthened the northern position with African American soldiers. The National Archives reports that about 179,000 former slaves served in the Union Army, and another 19,000 in the Navy. In addition to non-combat positions, former slaves served in both artillery and infantry units. Glory, the 1989 film, starring Matthew Broderick and Denzel Washington, presents a dramatized story of the 54th Regiment of Massachusetts Volunteers, composed mostly of freed slaves. The first freed slave to win the Congressional Medal of Honor was William H. Carney, a sergeant in the Massachusetts 54th, who received the Medal for Gallantry in Action at the Battle of Fort Wagner in South Carolina. The Buffalo Soldiers website reports that his citation read, when the color sergeant, that's a position in the army, not a racial comment, he was the person responsible for carrying the regimental colors into battle. To start over, when the color sergeant was shot down, this soldier, that would be Carney, grasped the flag, led the way to the parapet and planted the colors thereon. When the troops fell back, he brought off the flag under a fierce fire, in which he was twice severely wounded doubtless those in washington also recognized the emancipation proclamation's potential impact in the battle for european support doris goodwin points out that lincoln's public commitment to the emancipation brought the european masses who regarded slavery as an evil demanding eradication to the side of the north the emancipation proclamation caused a shift in european support from grudging neutral to the side of the north, and reduced European support for the south to something about the size of a single electron in a world full of atoms. Okay, so it wasn't that bad, but it did reduce the European support for the Confederacy significantly. As important as the moral imperative of slavery was to Europe, the continent also faced other more practical issues related to the Civil War. In fact, the Civil War may well have played an important role in the Industrial Revolution by increasing the manufacture of hard goods over textiles throughout Europe. By the time the cotton-glut discussed earlier had been used up, war-related manufacturing had significantly reduced the value of the textile industry to the British economy as a whole. Megan Gambino argues that the British sold all types of military equipment to both sides throughout the war. The Civil War's economic benefits to Europe did not stop with diversifying its manufacturing. Both the South and the North needed to sell bonds on the international market to raise money to fight the war, and the British and Germans vied to be the largest holder of those bonds. These economic ties brought Europe's interest in the war from theoretical to practical and proved to be the longest-lasting influence on both the European and American economies. United States' efforts to repay northern bonds was a political football for years, contributing to the debate on the nation's use of greenbacks over gold or silver standards during the latter part of the 19th century. In 1869, these efforts contributed to the nation's first Black Friday, when President Grant and his Treasury Secretary dumped $4 million in gold into the New York market, forcing a 25% drop in the price of gold. The drop caused the stock market to crash, which in turn forced the price of agricultural goods to tank. The price of wheat went from $1. forty to $0.77 cents a bushel, ruining the grain market and throwing the agricultural industry into a financial tailspin that took years to recover from. Europe had a much more difficult time collecting the bonds the South sold to finance their part of the war after the war there was no confederacy to collect the bond indebtedness from the british bankers who had financed the southern side of the war went to the individual states that had made up the confederacy to collect on the war debt along with other debts these states had incurred prior to eighteen sixty But left with no industry to generate revenue, the states first defaulted, then repudiated these debts, a choice that made it impossible for the South to obtain the credit they needed to rebuild their economy, creating a situation that had huge financial long- and short-term repercussions to the South. In the short term, the repudiation forced Southerners to rely on Northern finances, which led to accusations that the North was bleeding the South financially, complicating efforts to unify the nation. Long term, it lengthened the southern recovery from the war. How long term? Well, as late as 1935, British banks were still seeking a solution to the repudiated war debt, and a 1940 article in the Journal of British Studies suggested that they were still waiting for payment of their past debts from the South at the outbreak of World War II. Both slavery and the economics of the war had important social, political, economic, and cultural ramifications not only for the Civil War combatants, but for Europe. Short-term, the way Lincoln addressed slavery proved to be a vital tool in Northern efforts to win the hearts of Europe, and therefore contribute to the Southern defeat. Long-term, how Union and Confederate debts affected the American economy, along with the treatment of freed slaves during and after Reconstruction, had a significant impact on the development of a distinctly American form of racism. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, and tune in to future broadcasts about the wonders of history.